Oh, beware, my lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. <laughs> so you guys like that? That is my rendition of a quote from Othello, Shakespeare's Othello, where green-eyed monster, that term, was coined. I didn't know it was a Shakespeare invention, which I thought was pretty cool to learn about. But yes, today we will be talking about jealousy. The neuroscience of jealousy and how it can affect our mental health. So, of course, I think that's going to be really cool. But before we go into any of that, I do have to make a disclaimer that this is going to be the first episode where Paul isn't actually with me, unfortunately. He wasn't able to come and record this week due to school stuff. And because I'm a little stubborn about getting the episodes out sooner rather than later, I asked him if I could just ask him a couple questions remotely and insert some of his answers in later. So that's how we're going to do it today. But, uh, do I even say it? I mean, I, do I say it with no one to stop me? I guess I'll do my best to make everybody's rainy days a bit brandier today, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, it feels weird without Paul here to object. <laughs> Hey guys, so I'm having to tune in remotely this week. Feeling pretty swamped by schoolwork. <laughs> Didn't have the time to, to make it down in, in person. So, here in spirit, but uh, not in body this week. <laughs> How nice of him, right? Put a little message in there for everybody in the beginning. <laughs> School does come first, so I'm glad he communicated that with me, but I was personally really excited to get to this episode because... First of all, it's just really, really cool. Jealousy is, like, such an interesting emotion. And not only is it just really super interesting, and I think you guys are going to really like this episode, but more importantly, it's episode number eight. For me, at least. Not for Paul, technically. But if you guys remember, I think it was on the first episode or something, I said I, I ultimately just wanted to get to episode eight because, on average, podcasters start to tap out around episode seven. Which, you know, ultimately pretty much amounts to nothing, but I like being above average, so. To start, I'll give you guys a short summary of what I plan to talk about today. So first, I have asked Paul a couple questions remotely, and I asked him to record his answers to these questions. So I will be including some of his answers throughout the episode, but he won't be majorly present in most of the episode, unfortunately. However, I didn't want to totally skip out on some of his insight or thoughts on the very complex and ambiguous emotion of jealousy and what it is and how it can affect us. So I did ask him a couple questions. I will put those in here as we go through. But so first, I'd like us both to define jealousy and what we consider it to be. We'll talk about what jealousy is in animals that are or aren't human, right? The possibility of a function, like a, an evolutionary function of jealousy. That'll be the first thing we talk about. The second thing will be heavily concerned with the neurobiology of jealousy. We'll be talking about a paper that I found doing an experiment to specifically study jealousy in monkeys, and I thought it was really cool, so I'm going to try to talk to you guys a little bit about that. We'll talk about some parts of the brain and hormones that might be implicated or have been implicated or hypothesized to contributing to the experience of jealousy. And finally, what I want to close with is talking a little bit more about why experiencing jealousy can actually be a really, really good thing. <laughs> and how we can use the emotion of jealousy to our advantage in our journey toward positive health, positive mental health. So I think this will be a really interesting episode. 
It is a little heavy on the science in the middle, <laughs> in the middle section, but really, really cool stuff. And I'm going to try my best to break down some of this complicated neuroscience for you guys to really understand what the results were and why we can interpret them the way the scientists kind of tried to interpret them. Okay, let's do it. So first, as I said before, Shakespeare was the first to describe the green-eyed monster, right? I was curious why jealousy is even associated with the color green. Just trying to figure out whoever's trying to attack my favorite color is all. So I looked it up. I mean, I did a very brief search, but apparently this is, this is the, pretty much the only thing that I did find. It was that the ancient Greeks thought the experience of jealousy actually caused an increase in the production of bile in our body. Bile is like that gross, like yellowy greenish fluid that kind of lives in our stomachs and our intestines. And, and so the Greeks apparently thought that experiencing jealousy in, increased the production of bile in the body so much that it would give the skin a greenish tint. I'm assuming that's where maybe Shakespeare got it from culturally to describe it as the green-eyed monster. Not entirely sure if that's super credible, but I don't know. I thought that was an interesting little tidbit about how, A, an emotion can possibly, even in the past, could be interpreted as possibly affecting our physiology as an individual. And not only that, but it could contribute to a physical difference in the way we see each other. Which, again, I, I don't, I mean, it's, I, I'm pretty sure that's not true at all, but it was an interesting way to think about it. And so that's where I'm at least assuming, like, kind of why we have sayings such as the green-eyed monster and being green with envy, for instance. So first, I asked Paul to define jealousy in his own terms. I'm going to play his audio clip right now. I figure I'll just sit back and give you guys commentary as we all listen together. <laughs> this is his definition of jealousy. How would I personally define jealousy? That, that feels like a hard one. It's it's a very broad question for sure. I feel like a lot of emotions are very broad in their oh basic Paul. sense, but I guess jealousy is the the feeling of when you have expectations set for yourself and you see other people meeting those expectations, those same sort of expectations or goals for themselves and sort of the the disconnect or the difference between what you wish for yourself and what you see other people achieve or have or possess or whatever. Um, that sort of difference leads to an emotion of you wanting to be in that place because that, that is the expectation, expectation you set for yourself. And when you're not there and you see others reaching that, um, it casts uh, a shadow of doubt on your own abilities or capabilities. I guess, it, I guess it's that difference in the observed wanting um, and seeing somebody else have it. Something like that. I agree with a lot of those points, but I'll reiterate a few. I personally think that jealousy has lots to do with the way that we view ourselves and how we feel when we naturally compare ourselves to others. I also think it's a much more complex emotion in humans than in other animals, but quote-unquote jealous tendencies are seen in monogamous mammals, such as the prairie vole is one of the very common rodent models to study jealousy and, and its role in the monogamous pair. So jealousy is studied widely in the prairie vole, but there are scientists who believe it might be helpful to study this emotion in animals that are more closely related to humans, right? Such as monkeys. Before having read this paper, I would describe it as 
a feeling that we get when, again, usually has to do with comparing ourselves to others or it has to do with social scenarios that we ourselves are involved in or maybe want to be involved in. And there's usually a, a third party involved, right? That's like the typical example of, of, you know, romantic jealousy when there's another person that might have the capability to disrupt and cause a ripple in our relationship with somebody else. Jealousy isn't just a part of romantic relationships, in my opinion. I do think that there can be platonic jealousy as well. Jealousy can totally come from a situation like that where we feel really insecure about, well, the things I was providing for the friendship or the relationship are now being compared to another person's contribution to a similar relationship. And so that naturally starts to make us feel a little bit jealous. So if somebody can provide something for another person that we can't or we think we can't, that is where I think jealousy kind of stems from. And that goes back to how we compare ourselves to others. And that can show us how we feel about specific aspects about ourselves and how we value those aspects, whether they be positively or negatively valued in our own heads. So in the paper that I will be talking with with you guys a little bit about today, I came across something that these two scientists, Ellis and Weinstein, right? Those are the last names of two scientists. In 1986, not that long ago, by the way, they proposed there were three conditions necessary for eliciting jealousy in an organism. The first condition being that there is an attachment or a relationship between two individuals. The second condition being that there are these valued resources that are part of the attachment bond, such as having physical protection, for instance, for each other. Or maybe it could be financial resources or it could be emotional resources, a bunch of different resources. But there are resources in general that are part of the attachment bond that goes into number three, in which those resources are threatened or perceived to be threatened by an intrusion of a third party, a third individual. And the idea is that the third party individual is looking to become the new receiver of said resources. Right? So the first thing is the attachment, which leads to resources. The second thing is the existence of these resources. And the third thing is the threat of losing these resources to a third party. So that is how scientists would articulate the, the conditions of, of jealousy, even in non-humans, particularly in the world of ecology, but it's still helpful to understand our own behavior. Jealousy, too, is, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, if, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. There are a lot of ideas that jealousy developed to maintain relationships through evolution. For example, if you're an animal in the wild, you can get this protection of a mate that will ensure the passing of genes between those two individuals. And if a male is trying, say, to court a female who is already in a monogamous pair, the male within the monogamous pair will display quote-unquote jealous tendencies. This is something that has been seen in animals outside of humans, in the wild and in the laboratory setting. So one of these jealous tendencies they are referring to is, for example, the behavior of what they call mate guarding. And so there literally have been, and I learned this from the paper I'm about to talk about, but there have been observations both, again, in the wild and in the lab that show that monkeys will, different kinds of monkeys, but specifically I'm talking about TD monkeys, T-I-T-I monkeys. These monkeys, they are monogamous for life and they pair bond for life. So it's basically, it's kind of likening this to a romantic relationship in humans, a romantic monogamous relationship in humans. 
and they will physically hold back, the males will physically hold back the females from trying to interact with this unfamiliar male who might be intruding on their territory, for instance, and who might actually try to be acquiring that female to create a pair bond with. So not only, though, is there physical protection, such as bodily protection or protection of genes being passed on to the next generation, but for those resources. And one of those resources, again, sexual reproduction, sure, but there is also something called social buffering. And that is a, that's a resource on its own, which just in a nutshell means interacting socially with other organisms, usually within the same species. This can buffer other behaviors, such as, and buffer means like it can kind of dampen the effect other stimuli have on these animals. So social buffering could cause, for instance, an animal's stress response to be a lot more calm on average while they're with their partner than if they had been separated from their partner, then their stress response might be really, really high. So that's what social buffering is when you have a partner, for instance, in this case, and that social interaction leads to positive outcomes for the organism's behavior. And I think that's absolutely relatable to humans, in my opinion, because I don't know, I think a good way of thinking of social buffering is when you're, you're going to a house party and you don't really know that many people and you take a friend with you, right? That helps. That social interaction helps both of you be like less anxious at the party and more social and that kind of thing. It ultimately comes down to, though, what I want you guys to remember is that there is a third party threatening the resources of a relationship of two individuals. And in humans, this could take place, like I said, in both romantic and platonic relationships. It could also take forms, I'm sure, in a million other ways. But jealousy is a spectrum of behavior. You can feel intense jealousy. You can feel really minimal jealousy. Some people don't even experience jealousy. Some people experience jealousy very, very easily and quickly due to different situations. So I'm sorry, guys. I know this is probably a little bit more boring because I don't get to make jokes back and forth with Paul. But... It's super interesting. And I know, again, this might be a little bit more of a dry episode because it's just me talking mostly, but it is really, really cool. Also, another question that I did ask Paul was, has he ever experienced intense jealousy? And if so, how did he differentiate it from the emotion of anger? So here, let me play that clip really quick for you guys about what Paul said. Um, uh, I mean, of course, who, who hasn't to some capacity? Um, I mean, like being a stupid single track mind teenager like yeah i was jealous over other people dating other people <laughs> in some capacity i don't know if i was like super jealous like i guess it's hard to quantify emotions in general um i guess one example is when i was a research tech and seeing first year grad students straight out of college um who i was like constantly around um they're like seeing them struggle and then me wishing I was in that place uh, because I wanted I wanted it so bad but I couldn't have it and then I was watching my peers who were in the grad program struggle so much with whether they were making the right decision or whatnot and like I, I feel like I was good friends with them and like we talked about this but like in the back of my head at sometimes like I I did feel jealous that that they had that opportunity and I didn't and it I like had to catch myself over and over again because I kept finding myself being so frustrated at hearing them vent about it 
because I wanted it so bad and uh, I didn't have it. And I, I, I mean, I had to work for it and they obviously worked for it and they got there and that's awesome for them. And like, I can look back now and realize that I, I obviously had a lot of resentment towards myself that I had to work through um, and, and processing those emotions. But uh, I, guess, I guess that was probably the most intense jealousy I've had. I guess the second part of that question, how was it different to or similar to experiencing anger? I mean, I guess one thing that I sort of differentiate in my head with anger is like annoyance versus like outright anger where anger is like an emotion that evokes a want to to do harm or Whoa. to break things, whether that's like physically breaking things or like socially like breaking ties with people, like ending friendships or relationships. Like, okay, we think differently about anger, but go like on. Causing some sort of shift in the status quo. That's anger. Annoyance to me is... We're going to get back to that one day. When a situation is out of my control, I guess, and I have to grapple with, like, learning to be okay with the circumstances that are around me that are out of my control. And so, I don't know. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say when I was, like, feeling jealous over my peers in, in that moment... Uh, early on when they were in grad school and I wasn't that like that that was necessarily anger I feel like it was jealousy and it manifested in a like sort of sense of annoyance because I wasn't okay with where I was I was annoyed at myself I think jealousy evoked annoyance sort of inwardly um whereas anger is in my head at least the way I I frame it is sort of an outward sort of emotion excited to come back to the the talk about anger one of these days (laughs) but um again totally agree with a lot of the things that paul has said i think depending on the scenario people will experience different amounts of jealousy based on you know their own idea of the situation and themselves compared to the situation that kind of thing i don't know i've experienced jealousy multiple times and I, i think it's normal for everybody i remember the first time that I genuinely experienced like deep deep jealousy and I'll just give you one of my quick Jeff stories but it was I was dating this girl for like three years maybe almost four years like throughout like middle school and high school we like ended up breaking up sometime in I don't know sophomore year high school but there's this kid who was in theater with her that I just it's always the theater kids too isn't it he obviously had a crush on my girlfriend and like was very open about having a crush on her. And like, I, I never had the opportunity to like be there and interject and be like, yo, like what the hell? But she would come back and tell me all these things all the time. And I was always so jealous because, you know, they were in theater together and they spent so much time together. And I was like, bro, if this guy is going to try to stomp on my territory, then there's going to be a problem. Not that women are territory at all, but whatever. It's just a saying. <laughs> so I just remember being really, really jealous. and then having my girlfriend at the time just tell me that there's no reason to be jealous. And of course I was like, okay, fine. Over time I was like, whatever. And then when we broke up pretty much immediately, he started dating her (laughs) and uh, I was just like, wow. Yeah, I knew it the entire time. But I mean, funny part about that story was that I actually also simultaneously started dating his ex-girlfriend who he broke up to date 
my ex-girlfriend and then he started to get really jealous and I didn't do that on purpose we just really hit it off but <laughs> I just remember that really well because everybody in high school would joke about us being like swinger couples and which is stupid high schoolers are stupid because that's not what swingers are anyway but I just remember being like wow what is this emotion and I was like oh I'm just really damn jealous of this person and I had every right to be <laughs> at the time and whatever now it's just a funny story in my podcast so <laughs> not a total loss all right, so I'm going to do my best to talk about this this scientific paper, which papers, I, I think we did describe it on another episode, but I ended up cutting it because it was too long. But basically, the goal of being a scientist is to create these publications. These publications are what we call papers. And when these papers come out, there's a question that scientists are trying to answer. They show you their results and what they found. And then whenever you hear somebody say, oh, they say nicotine is addictive. Right? It's because there's a, a publication out there, a peer-reviewed publication, meaning it's been looked at and read by and analyzed by professionals in that specific field. And then they officially publish them to a journal, usually where these pop sci, these popular science articles that we read about, they're usually based on one of these publications or a paper, right? We call them papers. And that will increase your credibility, basically, as a scientist moving forward. So... I found this article just by typing like neuroscience of jealousy into Google and uh, it's called scientists pinpoint jealousy in the monogamous brain. It's by Emma Duncan from 2017 and it's an article from the frontiers in science news website and it has a lot of really cool articles. If you guys ever want to check that out, I'm pretty sure those are all publicly accessible. I did read this article and I'm not going to talk about that article, but I'm going to talk about the paper on which that article is based on. The paper that I am going to talk about today is from a scientist lab whose name is Karen Bales. It's also from 2017. The first author of the paper is Nicole Manninger. They're from UC Davis, and they did this really cool experiment with TD monkeys. That's how you say it, not titty. <laughs> or at least I think it's not titty. I had to literally look that up because I like went to a website that showed me how to pronounce it because I didn't want to come on here and sound like a total idiot saying titty monkeys and everybody's just listening to me say titty the whole time. But one more thing I did want to mention really quickly is that all resources that I do mention on any of these episodes should be absolutely accessible just as much to me as, as they are to you guys. I usually just go on Google and look for stuff, but we are working on the Brainy Days website. And when that website is officially up, I'll include all of those resources that we discuss on every episode in a nice organized manner so you guys can kind of navigate. And if you want to read them yourselves and see what you think about these things, you know, we'll have them all on the website. So I'm really excited to get the website going. Anyway, that's a whole, that's a stupid logistic thing, but I'm really excited about it because, I don't know, once I owned the name of the website, I was like, yeah, so that was really cool. It's brainydayspodcast.com. You can't go yet, but I haven't opened it for the public just yet. But anyway, okay, the paper I'm going to talk about from Karen Bale's lab at UC Davis, it's called Imaging, Behavior, and Endocrine Analysis of Jealousy in Monogamous Primates. I'm basically going to go step by step to break down that title. So the three words you have to remember are just imaging, behavior, and endocrine analysis. The word jealousy in this title is actually in quotes. So it's quote unquote jealousy in the monogamous primate. And the reason they do this, they explain later in the paper, they give it quotes because we can't ask these monkeys whether they're experiencing jealousy. But we can assume that jealous tendencies that we see in animals might be similar to those that we see in humans. For instance, a, a guy fighting another guy because he's trying to hit on his girlfriend. But that could be similar to a monkey holding back his mate because there's this unfamiliar male around and all of a sudden he thinks his resources of that relationship are threatened. 
So these are copper TD monkeys. There were two different conditions. So in science, you have to create conditions if you want to study especially behavior. Basically, the idea is that ideally, everything is exactly the same in both conditions, except for the one variable that they're trying to change, which in this case would be inducing jealousy in these monkeys. So they'll put the monkeys in one kind of condition, which they're going to call the jealousy condition, and I'll describe that in a minute. And then they'll put the monkey on another day in what they call the control condition. And so that's like the non-jealousy condition. So what they ended up doing was they put a male who's already pair bonded with a female for on average about two or three years at that time, right? So they had been very familiar with each other at that time. They put a male in a cage and force it to watch his pair bonded female. Again, this is the jealousy condition. He watches his pair bonded mate interact with an unfamiliar male. Now they're not directly interacting. There is a wire mesh wall in between the unfamiliar male and the pair bonded female because monkeys are super crazy aggressive and they would actually probably rip each other apart if they let them interact. <laughs> but this is why we take precautions as scientists to make sure that there's no animal cruelty. And so they weren't physically interacting, but they were in close proximity, which is enough to make jealous tendencies evident within the male who's observing the situation. So that was the jealousy condition. The control condition was the same male on a different day watching a totally unfamiliar female be in close proximity to an unfamiliar male. So those are just the conditions. Now I'm going to go into the, the questions that they wanted to ask and then their method of doing it and then what they found. I'm going to try to be a little bit quick with this because there's a lot, but I don't want to get into the too nitty gritty of this, of the neuroscience when I'm just trying to give you guys an example of how we can study jealousy in animals. So some of the questions they were curious about were, which parts of the brain are found to be important in processing jealousy in these monkeys? For instance, do any of these monkeys show similar brain activation to the prairie voles that have been studied in these jealousy experiments? Or maybe even do they show activation in the same region as a human might experience jealousy? Because there are lots of studies also done in humans regarding jealousy. Another question they asked was, do these monkeys' testosterone or cortisol levels go up in their blood in the jealousy condition compared to the control condition? Because this has been seen in previous studies already, and testosterone is heavily involved with aggressive behavior, for instance. So usually we consider jealous people or animals to be a little bit more aggressive because they're trying to protect something. And cortisol is involved in uh, lots of stuff, but I mentioned it in one previous episode. Cortisol is, you can think of it as like the, the stress hormone, one of the main stress hormones in, in humans and monkeys. And when we have more cortisol in our blood, we tend to be more physiologically anxious due to usually a scenario. And cortisol has been found to increase when there are socially challenging times for an organism. So for instance, this whole jealousy thing would be a socially challenging condition. So they wanted to figure out the parts of the brain. They wanted to look a little bit at the, the testosterone and cortisol. They also wanted to look at vasopressin and oxytocin, two neurotransmitters. Vasopressin and oxytocin are both heavily involved in, in different amounts in social bonding. And also, at least for vasopressin, it's been seen to be involved in aggression in some animals. So they're really curious about testosterone, cortisol, vasopressin, and oxytocin specifically. And then finally, they're curious if, if there were increases in these hormones or if there were increases in activity of the brain, does this correlate at all with any observed behaviors they recorded when testing the monkeys? So again, it's all about the imaging 
the behavior and the endocrine analysis of the monkeys. The way that they did this, it's a very, very complicated process, and I'm going to be very, very brief on it because it includes methods that I would like to talk more deeply about in the future, specifically regarding neuroimaging methods. They had this plan to put the male in the jealousy condition, and then another day, put the male in the control condition. So one of the methods they want to use is just A, the general behavioral paradigm. They want to put the monkeys in the situations. They want to record on camera the behavior of the monkey that's watching his pair-bonded female, his bay basically, or non-pair-bonded female. They want to see the different types of behaviors that he exhibits while watching these different situations. So instead of just looking at the behavior, because generally these days in neuroscience, pure behavior is, is not necessarily the way high-impact research goes. And when I say high-impact, it means how much can you really learn from observing strictly behavior compared to observing the behavior, but also levels of hormones in the blood and different activation in different parts of the brain. And they wanted to do a couple different things to see whether or not there were connections between the neurobiology and the behavior of these animals. The way they did this was they wanted to use something called a PET scan, a PET scan. It stands for positron emission tomography. The way they do that is by injecting male monkeys with a radioactive chemical. And this radioactive chemical is basically a fake sugar. It's like a fake type of glucose, which is sugar. It's not really fake. It does the job, but you don't want to be eating radioactive sugar all the time. It's called an analog. Cells in our brains and in our bodies, when they are functional, they use more glucose because glucose is basically brain food. That's why it's so important because we're always using so much glucose in every cell of our body. And you can look at different areas of the brain and see which is using more or less glucose and see how they're involved in different behaviors. So it's, it's really, really cool. They inject this radioactive chemical into the monkey. And by a million complicated processes, we are able to decode this with computers and sensors and detectors and whatever in a big machine. And we can see the three-dimensional pattern of activity that's happening within this monkey's brain and wherever this radioactive sugar is being used. So first they inject the male monkeys with this radioactive chemical, and then they put them into one condition for the day, either the jealous or the non-jealous condition, the jealous or the control condition. And after 30 minutes of the male subject be in that condition, they would anesthetize the monkey, humanely of course, anesthetize, not euthanize, all right? Big difference. And put it in a PET scanner. And then by a million other complicated reactions, we can see the pattern of brain activity occurring in specific what we call regions of interest, right? An ROI is a region of interest that, that scientists were hypothesizing might have more or less activation during an emotion such as jealousy. And also at another point, they took MRI scans of these monkeys' brains so they can get a really nice clear picture. MRI is another structural imaging technique used in neuroscience. It stands for magnetic resonance imaging. Basically, we'll talk about that another day, but it can just use magnetism, <laughs> which sounds crazy. Magnetism of, of specific atoms in our, in our brain to give us a picture of the structure of one specific individual's brain. So you want to get the specific monkey's structure of his brain so that you can overlay it on the PET scans it's a very complicated process to show us the activity within a brain. And 
we overlay the MRI scans over the PET scans, and then we can see exactly which regions of the brain are activated due to this specific experiment. And then they also wanted to do the endocrine analysis, right? So this is basically, I'm just going through what the title was. That's just the concentration of, of circulating hormones in both the blood and the cerebrospinal fluid. That's like the fluid that is within our brains and all around and within our spinal column. And what they wanted to look at and analyze in the blood and the, the CSF is what we call the cerebrospinal fluid. They wanted to look at levels of oxytocin, vasopressin, testosterone, and cortisol, which I mentioned before. Okay, so basically the, the results in a nutshell, I will tell you there was more activation in a part of the brain called the lateral septum and also more activation in the part of the brain called the cingulate cortex in these monkeys during the jealousy condition but not in the control condition, meaning we can assume that the activation of these regions of the brain are involved with the experience that we were trying to manipulate that organism into feeling. So they tried to get these monkeys to feel jealous, and they saw activation within these two different parts of the brain. I'm not going to try to describe to you where these parts are because they're a little complicated to to describe, feel free to Google them and that might help you a little bit more to understand where these are. And what's important here is not exactly where these brain regions are, but the fact that these are the same areas, or at least these are two of the same areas that have been seen to be implicated in other jealousy studies with the prairie voles. So that's really cool for those scientists to have found a similar result that agrees with previous science saying, hey, we know there's activation here during jealousy conditions and nobody has done it with TD monkeys yet. So you guys try. So when they tried and they found that, that's exciting for them. The lateral septum and the cingulate cortex are both, for instance, the lateral septum has been said to be involved in social bonding and the cingulate cortex is a lot of emotional stuff, but also lots of social, it is activated heavily during social scenarios because usually social scenarios are accompanied by emotion and the cingulate cortex is all part of the limbic system, which is all emotion processing, basically. And so another cool thing they found was there was more activation in something called the anterior cingulate, right? Which is just basic. Anterior means like the front of. So the anterior cingulate cortex in these monkeys was also activated during the jealousy condition. What's interesting about this is that that's a part of the brain that has been shown to be involved in human jealousy and human research. So that's even more exciting because these monkeys are showing activation in the same region of the brain that humans show activation in during experiencing jealousy. So a few other results they found were that there indeed was a spike in testosterone during the jealousy condition, but not during the control condition. So when the male was viewing his female pair mate, he got an increase in not only testosterone, but also cortisol, which these were both expected due to other research in other animals in jealousy. However, this was still really good to see an increase in testosterone and cortisol because it was hypothesized that during jealousy, these would increase. They didn't find anything significant having to do with oxytocin and vasopressin, but they explained in the paper that they think it could be because of the, the time at which they took the blood samples, which might have been enough time for oxytocin and vasopressin to return to what we would call a baseline. So it might not be as present in the blood as the testosterone and cortisol were. As for the behavior, I haven't really mentioned it too much yet. During the jealousy condition, the monkeys watching their pair mate, they physically looked at the situation much longer than looking at the unfamiliar female interact with an unfamiliar male. So 
that was one behavior that they found. They looked at a couple other little behaviors, like I think one behavior that they found that was higher in the jealousy condition was lip smacking, for instance, of the male to his partner or toward his partner. And they're not super sure how to interpret that, but they do try in the paper. In my opinion, I mean, I think it's a pretty solid experiment. Again, both in the wild and in the lab environment, they see that the males will physically hold back a female. I think that's really cool from meeting specifically a new intruder male. That's, in my mind, you know, maybe it's not complex emotional human type of jealousy, but I definitely think it's showing a, a protection of resources. Because, say, if they're not necessarily jealous, that's fine, but they're still inhibiting a new relationship forming with this unfamiliar male that might threaten the resources that the current male is receiving from the female and vice versa, the female is receiving from the male. So I think it was a really, really interesting way to study jealousy. And the fact that they're monogamous pairs that are pair bonded for life, I don't necessarily think we are anthropomorphizing at this point, meaning we're, we're just saying, oh, he's jealous just like, in, just like a human would be because it looks like jealousy. I mean, we're not able to ask these monkeys if they feel jealous in these situations, but I don't know. I think it's a pretty clear indicator that there is a disruption within a relationship of two animals. There's a behavior that is the outcome of this disruption. And I think if anything, this would be a really good example of how we should study jealousy in nature. And it also gives us a little bit more understanding on how it can be evolutionarily advantageous. No emotion, nothing, absolutely no emotion that we feel as humans or animals feel is useless. Every single thing we experience, if it doesn't have a modern functionality, there was probably a functionality for it at one point in history, in the evolutionary history of that specific organism. I thought that was a really cool paper. It's all about monkey jealousy. They even have a note on interpreting this behavior in the paper. At the very end, it says, it's literally, it's like called like a note on interpreting this behavior. And uh, it's just describing how these are not humans. We can't necessarily say these are jealous behaviors. However, in our opinion, it's pretty clear that they are similar to jealous tendencies in, in humans. And I think that's pretty fair. That's what science is, right? We're trying to tease apart different behaviors that occur not only in humans, but in other animals as well that inhabit the world. All right. And the last thing I kind of want to talk about is what we can learn from jealousy, right? Like, like for instance, the evolutionary aspect I just kind of mentioned to you guys. What are the advantages to understanding it? And if we acknowledge when we are or aren't jealous and we get to learn that a little bit more about ourselves, is that helpful? Hell yeah. Are you kidding? I mean, it'll tell you so much, at least in my opinion, about, about what you value in yourself, what you value in other people, what you value about your relationships, what you think is at stake when it comes to relationships. And although jealousy for sure can lead to really negative behavioral changes in a human, chronic jealousy, for instance, might just make somebody more irritable over time, more easily frustrated, more, well, those are the same thing, but <laughs> maybe they're prone to, you know, depression more easily or anxiety more easily. Jealousy is kind of like, the opposite of social buffering, where it can cause these negative emotions to display more heavily than if the jealousy hadn't been there. I did ask Paul if he thought there were any benefits we could gain from experiencing the emotion of jealousy. And so this is what he had to say about it. Yeah, I, I think it can be a motivating force. And 
if you can, if you, I guess if you're experiencing jealousy about any given circumstance, if you can frame it in a way where it motivates you to do something positive or whether, whether that's what society deems as positive or what you, you internalize as positive and as long as that's not hurting anybody else, then I, I do think we can, we, we can benefit from having that sort of motivation. And I, I do think jealousy, in a weird way, can be a good motivator. I don't, I don't think it's maybe the healthiest motivator, um, but, but I guess thinking about motivation in general, like what motivates me to want to be a scientist, it's like, well, I enjoy that. I enjoy that sort of lifestyle, and I, I want to have it. I see other people have it, and I want that. I mean, is that jealousy, or is jealousy marked by sort of a visceral negative reaction to seeing other people have that when I don't? I don't know. But, yeah, I think it can be a motivating force, and uh, I guess I guess the caveat there would be that if you're going to let it be a motivating force, do as much as you can personally to try to put that into a positive light or positive perspective. Outside of that, I guess jealousy can help in self-reflection purposes. It can help you sort of land on what sort of things maybe you uh, subconsciously value that maybe you haven't sort of outwardly express to yourself or others. I guess it can it, it, it can help us focus on those things, I guess. So yeah, I, I think I think we can benefit from jealousy in small doses. I agree that jealousy can be good in small doses. I like that he says in small doses at the end as if we have like control over how many doses of jealousy we allow ourselves. Beside it being a functional motivator for whatever if we look at why we're jealous about something, it can also show us why we shouldn't really feel jealous, kind of. Say, you know, say I know a couple who has a house and a kid and a dog and a cat and a good job and whatever. And I, I have plenty of friends that, that have those situations. And yeah, I'm a little jealous of their situation. But when I think about what makes me jealous about those situations, it's like, it doesn't really make sense because I didn't choose the same path as a lot of them. I chose a different path for my own growth, you know? So when I started to really think what makes me jealous, like, do I want a kid right now? No. <laughs> do I want kids in the future? Yeah. I mean, I think that'd be awesome. Do I want one right now? Not at all. Do I want to own a house right now? No. I don't even know where I want to live. <laughs> I want to rent until and I know where I want to live, you know, until I finish school and get a job and know where I want to settle down. Do I want a, a relationship right now? I mean, honestly, mm, I do really enjoy being single. And these are just things that on paper, I was always like, oh, my friends have all their stuff figured out. And oh, I'm just so jealous about that. But when I thought about it, yeah, I was jealous at first. But when I really tried to acknowledge what made me jealous about the situations, it didn't make sense for me to value those aspects of their life any higher than aspects in my life. I don't have to wake up at three in the morning and feed my kid, my, my newborn or whatever. And no offense, all my friends who have newborns. I don't have to take my dog on a walk every day or make sure it's fed when I'm on a two-week vacation because I don't have a dog. I don't have to worry about not having 
a career right now because I'm in school. I'm preparing myself for my career. So these are not things that I can really justify genuine jealousy toward. And when I started to think about that more, it made me feel a lot better about a lot of situations and, you know, myself. And that's, that's always a good time. And if it didn't make me feel better and if it was justifiable, you can transform that jealousy into functional motivation toward achieving goals, which, bam, brings us right back to the beginning. <laughs> so uh, a nice little wrap-up summary in case any of you did a little uh, skipping around with a little 15-second button because this one was a little dense. <laughs> Paul and I gave our personal definitions of jealousy. We talked a little bit about the paper that studied jealousy in monkeys and the brain regions and neurotransmitters possibly involved with jealousy. And then we, I just finished up with how acknowledging jealousy when we feel it can teach us a lot about ourselves and contribute to our own personal growth and ultimately be you know, a positive experience in a lot of ways. So before I do officially wrap up this episode for the day, Paul and I are going to start releasing these episodes on Fridays instead of Wednesdays. I don't know, it's just easier for both of our schedules to, to follow this structure. So Fridays are the new days that uh, we will be releasing episodes. If you guys have any questions, you can email us at brainydays.podcast at gmail.com. We have a Twitter account that's at brainy underscore days. We have an Instagram that's brainydays.podcast. And this was a really, this was kind of a bummer to do without Paul, to be totally honest. And I hope none of you were painfully, painfully bored during this episode. But damn, I hope... uh. I hope I did a, an alright job of at least making everybody's rainy days a little bit brainier today, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. It feels weird. It feels weird to say it without Paul here to, to shut me down about it. <laughs>